begin our break from our studies in Isaiah to begin preparing ourselves for Christmas. We're going through Luke's account of the circumstances around the birth of our Lord. So this morning we're going to look at Luke 1, verses 39 through 56. So go ahead and turn there with me if you would. When I was a uh, teenager, my parents sent me down one summer to live with some missionaries down in central Mexico who were translating the scriptures uh, into one of the Indian languages down there. And one close friendship that I developed was with a young Roman Catholic believer. He and I became very good friends. We did some traveling together and we just enjoyed our fellowship in the spirit. But I can remember very distinctly one discussion that we had about how we viewed Mary. He was arguing for the value of praying to Mary and his argument went like this. He said, listen, somebody asks you to do something, you may or may not do it. But if your mother asks you to do it, wouldn't you be far more likely to listen? You know, and that argument made a lot of sense to him. And there is some logic to it. But it just fails to take into account Jesus' own words in Mark 3, when he looked around at the people who were listening to him. And he said, those that do the will of God, these are my brother and my sister and my mother. You know, we who come from a Protestant tradition, and most of the people here do come from a Protestant tradition, but by no means all. And I want to stop and, and say very clearly that we appreciate those of us who are of a Catholic tradition, and we value and respect your heritage and your perspective. Let me speak to those from the Protestant tradition. You see, we have been properly taught that it's wrong to worship Mary as if she were a goddess. Mary would have never tolerated that. And we have only one mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Now, we know that. But somehow, in our reaction, we seem to be afraid to look at Mary honestly and to give her the respect that is due her, that is given to her in Scripture. She was just a woman, like any woman in this room. But what a woman of God. What a woman of faith. You see, what happened was back in 1860s, somewhere in there, a man by the name of Pope Pius IX felt his power slipping as Italy was becoming a secular nation. So in order to offset that, he declared himself infallible. He was the first infallible pope. And then he also declared Mary sinless, born of a virgin herself, semi-divine. And the Protestant reaction to those edicts was so strong that we still have inherited some of that reluctance to honor Mary, to call her blessed among women. Well, let's take a new look at Mary. See her for the teacher and the model that Scripture presents her as and call her blessed. She is blessed among women and we needn't fear acknowledging that. Now there's one more point I want to make before reading the first few verses of our passage. I want to reinforce the model that Mary is for us, especially for our young people. She realized that Mary was a young teenager when the angel Gabriel visited her. She was probably only 14 or 15. But her mature, godly, biblical, humble response is testimony to the validity and the importance of a teenager's faith. 
See, if you are in your teens here today, realize that you are not in some holding pattern, waiting to someday become important and valuable to God when somehow you're transformed into an adult, whatever that is. Right now, you are important and enormously valuable to God. He can do incredible things in you and through you. He can change the world through you. You know, the, the greatest miracle of all time, other than the death and resurrection, other than the miracles done by our Lord Himself, was done through a teenager. You know, take courage in that. Think about who you are. Think about what God can do in you and through you. Look at Mary and be bold in your faith. Now let me um, set the stage for the first seven verses of our chapter, of our passage, I mean. Mary has already been visited by the angel. She knows what's going on. She's already pregnant. But think about what she must be going through. She had to tell her parents that she was pregnant. And how do you think her father, Eli, reacted to her silly story that she was still a virgin and that God had put this baby inside her? And how do you think she felt about her mother's tears and anger? You think her friends believed this story? And what about her fiancé? He knew he hadn't slept with her. How do you think she must have felt when he demanded to know who she had been with? You know, we're told that he was an honorable man and he didn't want to publicly disgrace her. But his anger to her in private must have been crushing. To be falsely accused, to be misunderstood, is is one of the most painful experiences of being a teenager. Uh, the, The injustice of it just seems overwhelming. And by this time, Mary must have been in horrible confusion, anguish, perhaps even doubting herself. So verse 39. Now at this time Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. See, Mary had to get out of there. So she went to her aunt's house. She thought, maybe my aunt will understand. You see, Mary had been told back in, in verse 36 that her aunt also was miraculously pregnant, but by her husband, Zacharias. But, but maybe her aunt would understand. Verse 41. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Mary got to Elizabeth's house. Maybe Zacharias opened the door. But when Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, she started screaming. She started shouting in excitement, unable to contain her, her, her joy and her, her, her respect, her admiration for her young niece. There, there are three words in the Greek piled up on top of each other right here that all mean to cry out in excitement. She probably ran over to Mary and hugged her, grabbed her by both of her hands, and just said, how exciting to see you. you know, what a thrill that must have been for Mary. 
Now here was somebody who finally trusted her. Someone who not only understood, but someone for the very first time who shared her joy. Someone who didn't just shake their head and frown in dismay. But someone who understood what she was feeling and felt it with her. And Elizabeth looked Mary in the eye and said, What a lucky woman. What an incredible privilege you have been given. I think for Mary, this was probably the first time since she had told her parents that she actually felt privileged. Elizabeth goes on and she says, How is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You don't see any jealousy in Elizabeth, any jealousy about the fact that Mary's baby was going to be greater than her son, who himself would be the greatest of all the prophets. Now you see in Elizabeth that attitude that she so well instilled into her son, who later in his life said of Jesus, He must increase while I must decrease. Elizabeth knew who Mary's baby was. And she was just filled with a sense of honor that he would visit her, even as a first trimester embryo. Now, incidentally, um, the, the way that Elizabeth knew who this baby was, who Mary's baby was, was that uh, when she heard Mary's voice, her own son, who John, who was six months old in, in her womb, leapt with excitement, with joy. With exhilaration is the word that's used. Dr. Luke, who wrote this account, uses the very same word for Elizabeth's fetus as he does later on for Jesus when he's out of the womb and laying in the manger. The same word. Both instances, the word is baby. See, Scripture makes no distinction between a baby before it's born and after it's born. Both are babies. Both are human beings in the image of of their creator. Anyway, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, the only other person on the whole planet who knew that God had already arrived, I mean, that he was alive in Mary. Elizabeth says with, I think, honest uh, uh, amazement, grateful amazement, how is it that you visit me? How is it that I have been honored like this? And I'm sure Mary was feeling at the time, well, but you're my aunt. You're Aunt Elizabeth. And I I need you right now. Then Elizabeth goes on and and says the, the statement that is the key to understanding all that Mary stands for, understanding all that Mary has to teach us. Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed that what God said would actually happen. You see, Mary was indeed a mere human being. A mere human like you or me. But what made her one of the greatest humans that ever lived is that she believed God. See, that's what makes any of us great. That is the greatness in any of us, that we believe God. In Romans 4... Paul is describing Abraham, explaining his greatness. And it wasn't because Abraham was such a great leader. It wasn't Abraham's moral character. It wasn't his religious insights. What made him great was that he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
And in that same passage, that same context, David is mentioned. David, the the great king, the great poet, the, the greatest leader the world had seen. But what made him great? He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You see, that is the key. That is what Mary models for us, perhaps better than anyone. And the next verses go on to show what comes out of that belief, the, the fruit of that, that, that belief, the, the joy and the exhilaration that are in her life as a result of her response to God. But before we look at that, I, I, I want to consider a couple other things. You know, until we look at somebody like Mary, we're tempted to think that this kind of belief is some overwhelming and overriding mental capacity to see everything so clearly that God's truth, the truth of God's Word is so clear and inescapable we can't help but believe. But when you look at Mary honestly and you see her confusion when the angel comes and says, you're going to have a child and she says, I don't understand. How can that be? I'm a virgin. I don't see how that will work, how it could possibly work. Or, or her hurt and her confusion as she deals with her family. And we see that true faith isn't believing because everything is so clear. Faith isn't even, belie- isn't even the capacity to see things clearly. Faith is believing when everything isn't clear. Faith is believing in the midst of confusion. When it all just doesn't seem to add up when it's hard to figure out how what God says could possibly be true, when it just doesn't feel like it makes sense. One of the greatest encouragements to my faith lately was spending some time this last month with Karen Ayara and her daughter Kelly, Karen's parents, as they were dealing with the death of Kristen, who had just been killed in an automobile accident. Kristen was only 18 years old. And as I sat there with these people, listening to them, I saw faith, believing God in the midst of confusion. It didn't look like superhumans untouched by grief. It didn't look like artificial saints spouting off meaningless verses of Scripture. It looked like real-life saints trying to, to hold on to the Word, trying to understand a little bit of what happened and why, confessing that in spite of appearances, their God is good. He is loving. His plans are good. As I sat in that living room, they sometimes weeping, sometimes confessing their love for their good and generous Lord, I felt a little like Elizabeth. How is it that I should be here among these blessed people? Most of you know what's going on with O'Neill's. You heard what Pat had to share, that Jim O'Neill had an inoperable brain tumor that took his life yesterday morning. And my first response was, why? I mean, here is a family that has served you faithfully, God, for years, and they finally get a chance to enjoy that house up in Cascade that they had looked forward to. They finally have a chance to enjoy the fruit of their faithful labor. And this happened. But the testimony of the O'Neills has been and is that in the midst 
of the confusion about why, in the midst of the deep pain, they are convinced that their true rest was only a short distance away, and Jim only went a brief moment before A.J., and that God still had ministry there in Cascade for A.J. to do. You see, faith is believing in the midst of confusion. I go on and on with illustration after illustration. I think of the graphs who are in a prolonged medical crisis. You know, sometimes the frustration and confusion is overwhelming. The pain, endless. But that's where they show their greatness. They believe God in the midst of the confusion. I think of Greg and Sherry Falk as they deal with their daughter's chronic problem and illness. They believe God in the midst of confusion. I can tell you of another friend of mine who lost his job and can't find another one. Another couple whose child has turned his back on the Lord and they're going through intense pain, fear. Another couple whose marriage is is struggling. See, whatever your confusion, whatever pain you're going through, whatever pressure you're under, true greatness is that in the midst of it all, you believe God. You hold on to who He is. You trust in His Word, His goodness, His wisdom, His love. And then you will be great. You will be one of the truly blessed. Who knows a a, a kind of blessing, who knows a kind of blessing intimately that is beyond putting into words. And thus it is that Mary, who believed God, is blessed. Now the next ten verses are her response, what flowed out of her, having believed God. This section is known as the Magnificat, because the Latin word, or the Latin translation of the first word that Mary uses in her psalm is translated Magnificat. Now this is one of the most beautiful and powerful passages of all of Scripture. In fact, a lot of modern scholars conclude that a 14-year-old girl could never have written this. This was written by a later biblical scholar who attributed it then to Mary because there are so many Old Testament allusions, direct quotes from from Hannah's song in, in 1 Samuel 2. And Psalm 34, Psalm 35, Habakkuk 3, uh, Job, Psalm 103. In fact, there are seven or eight direct quotes of the Old Testament all woven together into this beautiful psalm. Psalm that compares favorably to any that David wrote. But you see, the people that conclude that Mary couldn't have written this fail to realize the profound effect studying and meditating on the Scriptures can have on a young person. The Scriptures do transform our mind as we study them and submit to them. And see, I think that explains how Mary could hold on in the midst of such a confusing time. She had been feeding herself on the Scriptures, on the Word of God. There's one scholar by the name of Morris who I think is, is right when he speculates that Mary in her, in her hurt and her, 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 her distress had been looking up psalms that brought her comfort. And on her, her four-day trip down to visit Elizabeth, she had been meditating on Hannah's song. And that's why her psalm is so full of the Scriptures. 
But on the bottom line, the, the joy, the exhilaration that flow out of Mary are a result of the fact that she believed God. This is the fruit of her faith. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones. And he has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. And sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant. In remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers. To Abraham and his offspring, his seed forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months. Then, he re- then she returned to her home. Mary begins by saying that her soul, her, her heart, her, her thoughts shout the greatness of God. Exalt God. That's the word magnificat. God is magnificent. God is wonderful. You see, she's just overflowing with admiration and adoration for her Lord. And there is no greater, no deeper, no more profoundly satisfying experience to be enjoyed by man than to be overflowing with adoration and praise for God. Then Mary praises God, her Savior, who has done this wonderful thing in her. You see, Mary acknowledges that she herself needed a Savior. She wasn't born sinless. She takes no credit to herself for some uh, extraordinary righteousness that elevates her above other people. She realizes that it's all of grace. She didn't earn it. She didn't have to earn it. She couldn't have earned it. And as a result of realizing that, she's free to embrace it, to enjoy it, to rejoice in the loving kindness that had been shown to her by her Lord. Gratitude is the chief ingredient of joy. And Mary points out that God reversed her humiliation and made her blessed. Now, how was Mary humiliated? Well, there are several ways. First of all, realize here you have a woman with what most people considered an unwanted pregnancy. All of her life, People suspected her of immorality. In fact, even after Jesus was a grown man, the rumor persisted. The only people during her lifetime that knew better were the disciples. And we, future generations, look back and we realize what most people considered her humiliation was really her great blessing. But Mary knew that in her heart. And as a result of holding on to that, she was able to deal with the the, the thoughts and the words and the stares from people around her. She was able to hold on to the truth. And you see, if you believe God, and if you listen to Him about how you conduct your life, people are going to look at you as foolish 
or naive. And that feels humiliating. There are a lot of people who will not come to the Lord, who will not become believers because they fear that humiliation. I have a friend I went to college with. He's now a professor of biochemistry down in a Southern California college. And he told me quite clearly that his studies have led him to the point where he cannot believe in evolution. It does not fit the information that he has. But his fear of being humiliated among his academic peers keeps him from taking the biblical account seriously. You see, you will be viewed as humiliated if you listen to God and to His Word about your moral behavior, about how you serve your wife and your children, about refusing to go along with wrong business practices. But you see, you know you are blessed. You know that what God says is true. And that knowledge can get you through the humiliation. That knowledge can help you hold on to the truth. Another way God reversed Mary's humiliation has to do with her position in society. And here Mary was, a young girl in a society, a culture that gave no dignity, no power whatsoever to young girls. They had absolutely no control over any aspect of their lives. Uh, Their complete control belonged to their father and then to their husband. They had no control even over who they married. That was a decision for their father. Now, if the father was generous, he might ask for some input from his daughter, but he didn't need to. What she felt was largely irrelevant. And even an adult woman in that society had no power, had no influence or impact on society. But then Mary notices that God bypassed all of those who were in charge of society, all of those in control of history, those that Mary refers to as as filled with pride in their own hearts. They were legends in their own minds. God passed them all up and came to her. And when he did that, he treated her with respect and dignity. He didn't force himself on her. She chose to submit to him, referring to herself as God's bond slave. And in that relationship, she had authority and dignity. See, often we also, we too, feel powerless. You may be in a job in which you feel used and unappreciated. You may be in a marriage in which your spouse gives you neither respect nor any real say in what happens in the relationship. The word that Mary used For blessed means to be endued with power. You see, as God's bond slaves, we are given a different kind of power. The power to to live, to choose, to do what is right, to do what is important, no matter what people are doing around us or even to us. See, it's the power to respect ourselves with the same respect God gives us in the midst of circumstances that are really beyond our control. We can walk with dignity and righteousness, with wisdom and love, even to our deaths, if that's the privilege that we've been given. This last week I've been reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. What a, what a profound experience. I recommend it to all of you. It's, it's uh, a history of the believers who were 
put to death for their faith between the first century and I think about 1500s. I haven't got to the end, but I think that's when Fox lived. It doesn't have any of them from the 1500s to, to now, which would probably take many, many volumes. But there are so many stories that fit this. One story in particular, a handful of believers who were being executed by Rome for refusing to renounce their faith. In the dead of winter, they were stripped naked, forced to walk into a freezing lake. And as they walked in, holding hands, singing hymns, loving each other, trying to help each other keep their head above water, slowly, one by one, they begin to slip under the water and drown. And one of the Roman soldiers who was standing there witnessing this, as he watched this, began to peel his own clothes off walked out into the water to die with them. See, that's the effect of the power and the dignity that only comes to God's bond slaves. Now, I want to look at that word bond slave, too. This is the the term that, that Mary uses of herself repeatedly. That's the term she used of herself back in the last section where, where, um, the angel Gabriel came to her and she said, I don't understand how any of this can be. But then she said, Behold, here I am, your bond, or the bond slave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. You see, Mary already knew who she was. She already knew whose she was. She belonged to the Lord, absolutely, entirely. She had already established that. She was His to be used as He saw fit. And as a result, she was available to him to be used for this great miracle, this fantastic ministry. So that is the precondition to us being used mightily and powerfully by God. We have to decide in advance to whom we belong. Decide to whom you belong. Consider yourself his property, his to do with as he chooses. And you'll discover... That even though he may lead you through pain and humiliation, he is a far better master than you are of yourself. He delights to fulfill you, even as he uses you for eternity. You will find a greater freedom than you've ever known as his slave. Well, the rest of Mary's song focuses on just the, the power the justice, the mercy of God. She f- starts with focusing on God's power and His mercy to the, toward those who fear Him, to those who respect Him, who listen to Him, who love Him. These are the ones that see Him as He is. You see, seeing God as He is, understanding what He really stands for, who He really is, is what our hearts long for. Our world, our society, just like Mary's, is so full of injustice. Things are so backwards that it's hard to see God. It's hard to see that He's even involved. You know, people don't consider whether someone is kind, generous, treats people with integrity, mature. They look at somebody, whether they have broken a genuine jerk, But he's still your boss. And that just doesn't feel right. But to Mary, the fact that God 
bypassed all of the wealthy, all of the powerful, all of the prestigious. It came to her, a nobody in a country of nobodies. That's evidence that things are as they should be. That God still sees clearly and God still values what is truly valuable. God bypassed the Pharisees of Israel and the Caesars of Rome. You know, Jesus was not born to a patrician, to a woman of the Julians. He was born to a peasant, Mary. This is the elevation of every man. Now, this is things as they should be. There are no unimportant people. Who you are, what you do, the decisions you make, how you treat people, how you treat your family is significant. See, these are the critical issues of history. Not whether you're a leader of leaders, a great general. Not whether everyone admires you. Not how much money is in your bank account. And there are no insignificant ministries. See, Mary was in the backwaters of society, of the Roman world. She was nowhere. If she lived in America, she'd live in Boise or in Cuna. How could she possibly have known in advance that the things that God was going to involve her in, the things she was called to, was the the most important set of events in all of history, in all of mankind? See that Sunday school class you teach, that growth group you actively participate in, the prayers you make on behalf of our missionaries, the the meal you cook for somebody in need, may be a part of the most significant set of events in our entire generation. Only our Lord, who sees how it fits together, who calls us to play our part, only He knows what is going on and how he is going to use that in his glorious plan. Mary said that God lifts the lowly and fills the hungry with good things while the rich go away empty. The word here for fill means to give all they could want, to to completely satisfy. And that's what God does for those who hunger for him. He gives them the good stuff. Not... He doesn't fill them with the superficial things of wealth and luxury. He fills them with the real good stuff. A sense of value, of purpose, of security, deep joy, love. The things that the wealthy look for in their their wealth and in their, their prestige, but are still left hungry and empty and still wanting. It's a great... Bible teacher H.A. Ironsides wrote, The trouble with men generally is that they do not realize their need. They are not aware of their lost condition, and so they do not turn to God for deliverance. They attempt to feed their souls with the husks of this world and have not yet learned how futile is such an effort and how impossible it is to satisfy a soul made for eternity with temporal things. And because of their fancied wealth, They turn away from the eternal riches and continue in their sins. You see, Mary had a firm grasp on this, and we, too, do well to get a hold of it. It's only if we focus our hunger on things that can really satisfy, on God, on truth, that we can ever hope to be filled, to be satisfied. 
Well, finally, Mary acknowledges that God has remembered his promises to Abraham. He's kept his word to Israel. And the terms that Mary uses, she uses several terms. The term for remember and the term for, for, for keeping his promise, for helping carry in them the idea of paying attention, of keeping focus. That what she's saying is that God has been paying attention. He's, he's watching what's happened. He's aware of what's been going on the 2,000 years since he made his promise to Abraham that he would give him a seed, a descendant that would bless the world. And God has been t- paying attention the 1,000 years since he made his promise to David that he would give him a seed, a descendant that would sit on the throne forever. And Mary realizes that in her child, these promises are coming true. You see, Mary was, in fact, royalty. She was a daughter, a descendant of David on the royal line. And her fiancé, Joseph, was also royalty. He was a descendant of David through the other half of the royal line. And the genealogies of Matthew and Luke demonstrate, make it clear that in their marriage, the two streams of the royal line met and that Jesus was indeed the king, the rightful heir to the throne of David. But see, by Mary's time, who cared? Who paid attention? The royal line were carpenters and common laborers and and, and peasants. There hadn't been a, a, a descendant of David on the throne for over 400 years. I mean, for us, that would be back in the 1500s. Who cares what happened in the 1500s? Who pays any attention to promises made 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago? But Mary listened to those words, to those promises. See, in Galatians 3, Paul makes it absolutely clear that the seed, the descendant that was promised all the way through the Old Testament is, in fact, Jesus, the child that Mary was carrying. But that same passage also makes it clear that by faith in Him, we too are heirs of the same promises. We too are the seed of Abraham. We are royalty. Of course, Galatians was written nearly 2,000 years ago, and who cares what was written 2,000 years ago? How could that possibly be relevant to me and my life today? Well, if we take what Mary has to teach us seriously, then we will care. If we want to deal with reality, then we will care. You see, there are promises, there are are truths in this scripture no less mind-boggling than the truths that the angel gave to Mary. Now, my guess is none of you have been visited recently by an angel telling you that you will carry the life of Christ in your body. The fact is that what our Lord tells us in His Word, Second Corinthians, is that if you are in Christ, you do indeed carry about in your body the life of Christ. And that life will become more and more manifest in your attitudes and in your behavior as you learn to trust Him. You see, that's reality. Blessed is she who believed what the Lord has said will happen. You don't need to to earn that privilege any more than Mary earned the privilege or could earn the privilege. All you do is do exactly what she did. She said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me 
according to as you have said, according to your word. See, believe God. That is your opportunity for greatness. Believe God. Believe that He has forgiven all of your sins. All of them. And all of your inadequacies and all of your weaknesses. Believe that you are acceptable to Him. More than that, you are a delight to Him. He loves you. You're precious to Him. Believe that you are a new creature endowed with power to walk with dignity and righteousness. You are important to Him. The ministries that He has designed for you in your home and in your family, in your workplace, in this church, are critically important to His plans, as improbable as that may feel, that may seem. Let Mary teach you. Blessed is she among women, and blessed are we. See, whatever circumstance you are now in is your opportunity to be great. Believe God. Mary left Elizabeth's house three months pregnant, no longer worried about the stigma, no longer worried about the humiliation. She had been strengthened in her faith. She was sure of God's call of her. Well, I want you to leave this morning no longer worried about the humiliation, strengthened in your faith, sure of God's call of you. He wants to do mighty things through you. Believe Him.